I'm out of here, Lil. Okay, it starts with a bite. Excuse me, we're closed. What? What happened to you? And a scream. <laughs> then the symptoms begin. So stage one, you just look like you're sick, like you have a cold, with the exception that you're getting hungry. Hungry, but still human. For now, says Harvard psychiatrist Dr. Steve Schultzman. Stage two, you start to lose a little bit of your balance. You might hold your arms out in front of you. That progresses further to stage three, where you have intermittent periods of recognizing that you're not doing so well, but other periods where you're just lost and confused. You're not even sure how you got to where you got. So you're out of it, but still human. Until stage four. And then stage four, it's kind of game over. Your guts could be hanging out. You don't care. You don't know. You don't feel much. All you can think about is to grab anything that moves and try and eat it. If you or someone you love is suffering from a mindless hunger for flesh, Dr. Schultzman has a name for this brain disease. ANSD. It stands for Ataxic Neurodegenerative Satiety Deficiency Syndrome. But you probably know ANSD by another name. I'll let Adam Driver say it aloud. You really want to know? I'm thinking zombies. From Focus Features, welcome to Zoom, the podcast for people who want a closer look at the history and science behind today's movies. I'm film critic Amy Nicholson, and today I want to know everything about Hollywood and zombies. Why? The new black comedy from filmmaker Jim Jarmusch called The Dead Don't Die in which Adam Driver, along with Bill Murray, Tilda Swinton, and Chloe Sevigny try to protect the small town of Centerville from a zombie horde. It got me wondering, where did zombies come from? Why do we love watching them eat us? What would be the best way to survive a zombie attack? And why do so many smart people take these questions so very seriously? Like, for instance, Dr. Schultzman, who actually lectures at medical schools about his fictional zombie disease. And who wants to be totally clear, by the way, that zombies do not exist. I'm required by the dean of the medical school at which I teach to tell you that it's not possible to be undead. On this episode of Zoom, we will talk more with him, as well as film historians, experts from the Center for Disease Control, World War Z author Max Brooks, and Chloe Sevigny herself. I would hope that, like, some sort of survival skills would kick in and I would be able to, like, live off the land. There's a lot to explore. So, strap on a helmet to protect your brains, because we're going to need to keep them to survive. Zombies are the monster of the century. Literally. This year, the movie Zombie turns 100 years old, which sounds pretty old, but still makes zombies younger than every other movie monster, from Aliens to Dracula. Even so... In just that quick century, film zombies have developed all sorts of variations. Some are fast, some are slow, some are vicious, some are empty vessels, some are even a little pitiful, especially the ones who seem to remember being human. Like in The Dead Don't Die, when Jarmusch's undead rise from the grave, they cry out for the things they miss about being alive, especially beverages. Chardonnay. Holy shit, did she just say Chardonnay? Yeah, she did. Chardonnay! But most zombie films, including this one, have a couple of things in common. One, the zombies are us. 
Our once human friends and neighbors come back to haunt us for our sins. Hey, look over here. Here's another one. And two, there's a creeping sense that it is futile to fight back. Because unlike aliens or Dracula, in movies, zombies usually win. Oh man, this isn't going to end well. You said it, Adam Driver. So where do these tropes come from? Let's rewind back to World War I. That is when the story of zombies on screen begins. Though to be clear, we have been afraid of the dead for much, much longer than that. Perhaps the oldest fear is that the dead will return to exact revenge on the living. According to history professor Dr. W. Scott Poole, mankind's oldest custom is honoring the dead. Witness the Great Pyramids, where ancient Egyptians loaded the dead with gifts, more or less as a bribe. They were basically saying, enjoy being dead, and... Don't come back. What might the dead want revenge for? That question was especially worrisome during World War I. The Great War introduced all sorts of terrible weapons to the world. Machine guns, flamethrowers, poison gas. Almost 40 million people were killed. Too many bodies to even bury quickly. Just speaking as a historian... There really has not been another time in the history of the human race that for such a long period, so many people were exposed to so many numbers of corpses. At the same time, medical advances meant people who might have died on the battlefield survived with mutilated bodies and shattered minds. To be in France during World War I meant being surrounded by stumbling, shell-shocked victims. The living dead. Not simply missing limbs, missing arms, but what the French called the gil casse, the broken faces. And as Dr. Poole writes in his book, Wasteland, The Great War and the Origins of Modern Horror, that suffering inspired a new monster. It started with a movie called J'accuse, made by French director and war veteran Abel Gantz. It is made in 1918, released in 1919, is really the first zombie invasion film. J'accuse is a silent film about World War I. At the climax, a soldier stands in a field of his dead comrades and declares, Let's go and see if the country is worthy of our sacrifice. Wake up! Sure enough, the corpses arise and shuffle towards town, and the townspeople freak out. He has them simply return to tell the people of France, you have not recognized our sacrifice. Those corpses, by the way, were played by 2,000 actual soldiers on leave from the trenches at the Battle of Verdun. Some of those missing limbs and bandaged heads, they aren't special effects. They're real. J'accuse's soldiers limp like injured soldiers because they were injured soldiers. It is in that film that we see that slow, stumbling gait. The first sort of, you know, mass horde of the moving, living, dead. And their jerky movements became the zombie walk. One of the horrors of this, I should add, is the war was not over. These soldiers on leave actually returned to Verdun. And according to Gantz himself, about 80% of them died. So, frankly, you're watching The Walking Dead when you see that film. It is imprinted with the horror of the Great War itself. Abel Gantz hoped J'accuse would scare people into making peace so that a world war would never happen again. But in 1938, with World War II about to break out, it seemed folks had not quite got the message. 
So Gans remade J'accuse, bigger and bloodier. Now, the hero doesn't just wake up dead French soldiers. He wakes up the soldiers of every country that fought in World War I. American soldiers of the Great War, stand up. The dead soldiers climb to their feet, and they march. They move and moan and look like modern zombies. Mashed noses, missing eyes, rotting cheeks. And all of Europe freaks out. Here are the screams. The army of the dead get what they want. In the movie, instead of starting World War II, the entire panicking planet votes to abolish war. Now that there's eternal peace, and now that their sacrifice will be remembered, the dead go back to their graves. Gantz never actually called his undead soldiers zombies. That name came from the other side of the world at around the same time. Because while American troops were fighting World War I in Europe, other American soldiers were stationed in Haiti, and they noticed unusual stuff going on around the island. During the Haitian occupation, there was a lot of Marines over there who came back and wrote narratives about their personal time, stories of quote-unquote dead men working in the cane fields. Haitians called these quote-unquote dead men zombies, from the Congolese word for spirit. And this is Sarah Laro, author of the book The Transatlantic Zombie. The short version of what a zombie is, in the actual Haitian idiom from which it comes, is not a cannibal, nothing like what we see in cinema today, but just someone who has been put under a spell by a witch doctor. Like World War I vets, these so-called zombies were victims. The so-called spell was a drug, which the witch doctor administered to turn people into compliant servants. Movie makers took notice. Hollywood basically realized that this would be a great movie monster, and so the first movie that we have is White Zombie in 1933. White Zombie stars Bella Lugosi as wealthy voodoo mastermind Murder Legendre, who's turned local Haitians into slaves. They are not men, monsieur. They are dead bodies. Dead? Yes, monsieur. Zombie. The living dead. Taken from that Unlike today's zombie flicks, this movie is on the zombie side. Or, well, because this is the 30s, the movie is on the side of the white hero, who's terrified Bella Lugosi will cast a spell on his blonde girlfriend. The danger isn't really, at that point, that a zombie might get you, bite you, turn you into a zombie. The danger is that a zombie master might turn a white person specifically into a zombie. In fact, audiences felt a kind of kinship with this new monster. It was the Great Depression. And so people were feeling disempowered. In White Zombie, you have a, a very striking scene of zombies working in a sugarcane mill, and they're just circling around and around doing these repetitive gestures. It's a pretty short step to see why someone who was working in a factory or someone who was laid off or someone who was just feeling kind of like a cog in the machine would have resonated with that imagery and also feeling like they were being exploited. These poor early zombies are so helpless that at the end of the movie, they all accidentally walk off a cliff. But at least one of them gets to push Bela Lugosi before he falls. White Zombie led to a sequel, Revolt of the Zombies. 
And then there was King of the Zombies, and I Walked with a Zombie. And finally, 1943's Revenge of the Zombies, where the mad zombie-creating scientist is working for Adolf Hitler. At the end, the undead once again attack their master. I say ho! You hear me? I say ho! 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 These helpless undead, both black and white, rise up to fight the man together. Zombies weren't villains. They were revolutionaries. To me, that's very much in keeping with the history that I trace to Haiti as being about simultaneously not only the slave, but also about slave revolt. Because Haiti was the site of the most major slave rebellion ever. It was a rebellion that became a war for independence. The implied message? When the oppressed rise up and unify, they are powerful. And then, in 1968, George Romero made Night of the Living Dead and made zombie uprisings contagious. Romero himself said, I wanted to make a movie about revolution. He might not have been thinking in terms of slave revolt, but revolution is something that we deeply characterize as a contagious force. If it's been a minute since you've seen Night of the Living Dead, here's the plot. A brother and sister named Johnny and Barbara drive to a cemetery to put a cross on their father's grave. There are clues that their dad also died in a war, and that like the French villagers of Jacques, they've forgotten their father's sacrifice. Look at this thing. We still remember. I don't. You know, I don't even remember what the man looks like. Johnny, it takes you five minutes. Yeah, five minutes to put the wreath on the grave and six hours to drive back and forth. Johnny is not the kind of sentimentalist who would build a pyramid to honor the dead. He's even annoyed he has to buy that cross. Each year we spend good money on these things. We come out here and the one from last year is gone. No surprise that zombies attack Johnny first. But Romero revolutionized the genre by having his zombies eat people's guts. After which those people become zombies too. It's 1968 and the zombie has gone from victim to virus. So long as this situation remains, government spokesmen warn that dead bodies will continue to be transformed into the flesh-eating ghouls. Zombies go viral the year that war goes viral. The year images from the Vietnam War's Tet Offensive play out on television sets all over the world. In Jacques, Abel Gantz wanted to make sure people saw the violent face of war. By 68, mass media made violence something you couldn't even escape. After Johnny gets eaten, Barbara runs to safety, and a new hero steps forward. A black man named Ben who manages to survive an entire night of fighting off zombies and fighting off other people who disagree with how he wants to fight the zombies. Until, spoiler alert, he's finally, ironically, shot by the cops. All right, Vince, hit him in the head, right between the eyes. Good shot. Okay, he's dead. Let's go get him. That's another one for the fire. Who are the real enemies? The zombies? The humans who can't get along even with their lives at stake? Or a society that can't tell a black man from a monster? Once again, Sarah Laurel. It has, you know, such a complete parallel to the Black Lives Matter movement today. So it's a a film that's still enormously relevant. Night of the Living Dead was revolutionary in its rhetoric and in its graphic violence. Ironic, considering Romero was a notoriously fun, mellow dude. Remember Dr. Schultzman, our Harvard psychiatry professor? He was one of Romero's friends. And he says when Romero made the movie... He was at the time the cameraman for Mr. Rogers. And his inspiration came always from this kind of playfulness that I think began on shows like Mr. Rogers. 
Yes, the man behind the modern zombie also helped Mr. Rogers ease kids' fears about, like, getting a tonsillectomy. That's the doctor. And another doctor. And everyone wears a mask so that there won't be any germs on the patients. Did he ever tell Mr. Rogers about this movie? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, he kept working for Mr. Rogers after it. He loved Fred. (laughs) And Fred Rogers loved George Romero, even though Night of the Living Dead inspired movies and all kinds of art to get bloodier. Dr. Schultzman often thinks about the time he and George saw a production of Shakespeare's Richard III, and they were shocked by how violent, how Romero, the murderous King Richard, had become. So they had him with a chainsaw, they had him use acid, they had him use an axe. And I thought it was kind of cool, but George was kind of sad. He was like, wait, wait, this is Shakespeare. What are they doing? I'm like, George, this is directly derivative to you. Like, if not for you and what you inspired, we wouldn't be seeing this production right now. And he had really mixed feelings. That's because bloodshed wasn't really the point of Romero's films. His zombies aren't phenomenal killers. They're slow, they're easy to shoot. The problem is the humans. They argue, they fight, they shoot the wrong people, and they get greedy and selfish. There's a great scene in Romero's Dawn of the Dead, the one set in a mall, where in the middle of a zombie infestation, a biker steals a TV, just because he can. There's no point in even owning a TV. TV stations aren't broadcasting. Hey man, what the hell you gonna watch on that thing? I don't know, man. So the biker smashes the TV. No point to that either. And watching people loot and die in the mall, there's a tingle in our brains that connects Romero's modern zombies with the zombies of the past. The victims who fought the wealthy and the powerful and the warmongers who do not value human life. Even though we're no longer rooting for the zombies, we want to scream at the humans on screen. Hey, if you want mankind to survive, you're fighting the wrong thing. Look at yourselves. George Romero was a zombie philosopher. He got us to squirm and squeal and watch these horrible, bloody movies. But then at the end, you look back and you go, oh my God, I never thought about gender roles and materialism and race and the role of government and all these big things that our professors and our politicians try to get us to think of, but we don't until we see these movies. That's author Max Brooks. Many consider him a zombie philosopher too. He's interested in the practical steps we can take as people and as countries to survive a zombie invasion. At first, his books The Zombie Survival Guide and World War Z were shelved in the comedy section. Then one day, he got an email from the Naval War College. I wrote back and I said, who is this really? Because it seems a little crazy. Uh, why? Why? Why do you want me to speak? It turned out that World War Z was on the reading list at the Naval War College. The president, Admiral Wisecup, had read it and thought it was an excellent illustration of how a real global disaster would unfold. The Zombie Survival Guide is packed with sensible advice, like travel in groups and keep your hair short. And also advice like zombies can survive underwater, so be careful even when you're in a boat. Max Brooks went to the Naval War College and gave a presentation. I must have said something that they wanted to hear because I was invited back. And then I was invited to speak at a strategic studies group in Washington, D.C. And then from there, taking part in other military events like the Vibrant Response Homeland Nuclear Attack Scenario and uh, a hurricane rehearsal of concept drill. 
And then from there, I was asked to be part of the Modern War Institute. The Modern War Institute is part of West Point. Max has met a lot of soldiers. I cannot tell you how many times I've had soldiers come up to me and tell me that they've taken the zombie survival guide to Iraq or Afghanistan as part of their kit. There must just be some surreal moments. Like, has there ever been a moment where, you know, a kind of gruff veteran who's seen some stuff just comes up to you and wants to ask a zombie question? Oh, my God, all the time. Oh, we always we always talk about zombie plans, you know, what they would do, what their specific plan is, and we break it down. You know, we always say, like, well, are we talking on the tactical level? Do you have a specific mission you need to accomplish, or are you talking long-term strategy? When Max wrote the zombie survival guide in the late 90s, he was worried about the Y2K computer bug. Remember that? But the book didn't get published until 2003. And in the post-9-11 era... Suddenly, people really, really wanted to know how to prepare for zombies. One of America's greatest weaknesses is getting sucker punched. We stick our head in the sand and we just think about me, me, me. Uh, That can't hurt me. I'm just going to live my awesome life. And then before we know it, uh, the zombies are at the door. That's America. That is Sputnik. That is Pearl Harbor. That is 9-11. That is Hurricane Katrina. That is the election of 2016. That is America. Whoa. Meanwhile... What also happened in the 2000s is that zombies stopped shambling. How do we know they're coming? They're coming. Ready? And started running. In movies like World War Z and 28 Days Later, they get faster and faster, just as the problems of the world now feel like they're coming faster. We're all wondering how to survive them, or even if we can. And zombies give people like us and people like Max a way to talk about how to keep safe. Just that tiny little intellectual condom of knowing that zombies are fake is enough to protect your brain. So you can talk about things like law and order breaking down and diseases running rampant and getting an infection, not having antibiotics. All those things you can talk about seriously if the catalyst for that conversation is fiction. Dave Daigle took that concept to heart. He's a director of communications at the Centers for Disease Control, where their goal is to help us survive. One day, after a hurricane hit Japan and triggered the Fukushima nuclear meltdown, he got on Twitter to offer advice. One of the things that came out of that Twitter session was zombies, zombies, zombies. You know, and we asked people, what are you prepared for? And people were saying, we're prepared for zombies. Dave was fascinated. And also, at the time, a zombie attack felt kind of personal. The Walking Dead had just completed their first season, and in that first season, they blew up the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta. They blew up your office. They blew up the whole center in in that first season (laughs) of Walking Dead. So Dave figured one way to get people interested in disaster preparedness was to post a guide about zombie preparedness on the CDC's official blog. Truth be told, not a lot of people look at the blog. The blog site is, you might, if you're a big month, might be 200 people looking at that blog. For two days, he waited nervously to see if anyone in the office would get mad that he'd published something so silly. Then, on the third day, internet users discovered the U.S. government had posted a zombie survival guide. And within, I would say, eight minutes, our blog, we crashed the server that had the blog on it. You crashed the server? Which then actually worked for us because that became the headlines in a lot of the news stories. Zombies crash blog. Zombies kill CDC. Why would zombies work on people? Why would we rather prepare for something that isn't really real? You know, that's fa- you know, it's so funny you say that because that's the same question we say. I mean, fortunately for us, all the advice we, we gave around zombies is really all hazard preparedness. 
Okay, well, since I am talking to an official government representative, tell me how to survive a zombie apocalypse. You would find a very safe place to hunker down. You would make sure you had enough food. You'd make sure you had enough water. You would have a family plan drawn up that, in fact, who do you have to contact and do you have alternate ways to contact them? Do you have your enough medicines? Do you have enough for your pets? Do you have money put away? Do you have extra gas for your car in case you have to travel? So all those things, whether it's a tornado that's inbound or hurricanes or if there are zombies crowding outside your house. Our thinking was, look, if you want to call it preparing for a zombie apocalypse, that's great, but please prepare. The CDC's guide was pretty comprehensive, but it left out one seemingly obvious tool for a survival kit. Kelly Baker is an educator and author of a book called The Zombies Are Coming. So for the longest time, I taught this class called The Apocalypse in American Culture. And I would ask students, like, what do you think you need? What do you think you need to do this? And almost always the first answer was guns. Guns. Totally. Because when we switched from empathizing with zombies to needing to kill as many of them as possible, we got way, way into shooting them, both in video games and in movies. Holy shit. In 2004, Zack Snyder remade Dawn of the Dead and turned zombie gun culture into bleak, bloody comedy. Now on top of them all, there's a sniper who looks like Ted Nugent. And the survivors make a game of shooting zombies who look like celebrities. Rosie O'Donnell, tell him to get Rosie. Yeah, Rosie. Nah, too easy. Give him something hard. You guys had really rough childhoods, didn't you? It's a little bit rocky. Hey, sweetheart, let me tell you something. You, uh, you have my permission. I ever turn into one of those things? Do me a favor. Blow my fucking head off. I mean, on some level, do we want zombies to attack? I think there are people that really kind of want this to happen in some way because it gives them permission to act in a way that they think they can't act due to like societal expectations, right? Or cultural expectations or this sort of thing. Okay, so you're saying part of the thrill is hoping the zombies will arrive at our own front door. It is the plot point of all zombie apocalypse movies, right? Zombies enter, things fall apart, then we have to figure out what we're going to do next. A long line of Americans from our origins to now, have thought that the only way to fix society is to completely destroy it. Max Brooks has seen this too. There's always been a subcult of human beings that feel like if society would just collapse, they could then become the alpha that they know they're supposed to be. They're just being held back. As in, in the land of zombies, Joe Schmo will be king. Those can go into some really dark places. I mean, I've had more than a few people come up to me in autograph lines and say, you know what, I've tried Googling disaster preparedness and it's only about three or four clicks away to take me to Stormfront, which is the, you know, white supremacist websites. Meanwhile, as some prepare to become zombie slayers, others are preparing to become the actual zombies. What is going on at the Monroeville Mall? Hundreds of zombies shuffled through the halls in an attempt to beat the world record for largest zombie walk. Giant organized zombie walks have been trending. Like this one back in 2006 at Pennsylvania's Monroeville Mall, where George Romero shot Dawn of the Dead. 894 people showed up. Then another in Chicago drew 1,550. In Michigan, 8,000. In Denver, 12,000. And then in Minnesota, 30,000. Zombie walks are, well, contagious. Oh my God, there's zombies everywhere. Sarah Laro, our zombie slave expert, has a theory. Why are people willing to spend a Saturday dressed as zombies, turning up in the public square, 
you know, fake blood on them, ripped clothes, moaning. What is this about? And for me, the only thing that made sense was that it's sort of to show that we can. It's sort of a message that says, you know, we can coordinate if we need to. Because zombies have strength in numbers. I don't think that zombies can ever be the revolution, but I think that they're a great placeholder for revolution. So we've seen zombies go from slow to fast, from representing war to racism to capitalism. I asked Sarah Laura what the next stage in their evolution might be. Obviously, what's weighing on our minds these days are climate change. So I've been kind of saying, okay, where are the eco zombies? I'm ready for that wave now. Oh, the eco zombie is here. Take it from Chloe Seveny, among the many stars of Jim Jarmusch's The Dead Don't Die. Most, like, zombie trends come after, you know, some sort of catastrophes. And I know that Jim is very concerned with the environment. Sure enough, as Jarmusch's movie begins, there is something very wrong with the planet. The birds are gone. The ants are going crazy. The sun is setting way too early. Zombies, it turns out, are just one more symptom of an ongoing natural disaster. The Earth in our film gets off its access because of fracking, and therefore, you know, the zombie apocalypse begins. Of course, the powers that be swear fracking has nothing to do with it. Here's what the energy secretary had to say in this evening's press conference. Listen, these alarmists are dangerous liars. Let's not believe something just because one so-called scientist says it's true. Polar fracking has created fantastic jobs, big profits, and energy for our great country. But pretty much everyone in Centerville knows that's a lie. From the kids passing through town on a road trip to the local police, played by Chloe, Bill Murray, and Adam Driver. And what can I say? The world is kind of strange lately. If you ask me, this whole thing is going to end badly. Even so, what are Adam Driver and his fellow cops going to do to save the planet? Well, what are any of us doing? Really not much. Guys, shouldn't we be telling each other that it's all going to be okay? That this will all go away like a bad dream? Gee, Lindy, I'm not sure I can say that. The dark comedy of The Dead Don't Die is that it knows in this fight for our lives, this passive Centerville way of dealing with problems, it isn't going to be enough. Humanity's got to finally confront the monster we helped create. We gotta give it our best shot. And as we've seen in pretty much every zombie movie, one human hero, even a dozen heroes, they're still gonna lose. To overcome today's crisis, we all need to be, well, like zombies. We win, Chloe told me, when we fight en masse. Joining together, joining forces, being there for each other, just more, you know, a sense of community and coming together. Otherwise, I've just got one question. Are we the apocalypse? Zoom is produced by Focus Features. It was written and hosted by me, Amy Nicholson. Our senior producer and senior editor is Rico Galliano. Stephen Cologne engineered, sound designed by Jake Gorski. Our mournful original music was composed by Martin Ostwick. Kim Troxell is our graphic designer. And thanks to Angela Visagas for production help. Our show comes out wildly irregularly, so be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Zoom. Till next time. Stay curious.